This is AT Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. For more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. My guests today are Meredith Bowles from Mole Architects and Piers Taylor from Invisible Studio. And we're here to talk about a little house on Wells next to the sea called Freeholders that Meredith Bowles has just completed. Meredith, do you want to kick off by telling us how you came by the project? Yes, it was. Um, we got a call uh, from an engineer who's our client. Uh, he thought we'd be the right fit for what he was looking for. And had he seen houses of yours before? Like, did he have a very clear idea of what he wanted when he came to you? Well, he lived. He lives in a house opposite the Balancing Barn. So uh, he first came across us probably when uh, the the MVRDV the building that we did for Living Architecture was built right across the road from him. Um, so he knew we were up for doing something interesting. And subsequently, um, David Cantrell, who's one of his engineers, we've worked on a couple of houses with David. And how much is it an engineering challenge? Because obviously balancing barn, you can kind of see why that might appeal to an engineer. Um, on the face of it, this looks like a very considered poetic little composition, but it doesn't look as though the engineering challenge is anything unusual. Not particularly. Um, I mean, one bit that, uh, I mean, will come when we start talking through the building, I suspect, but the it, it, to get the little roof terrace in was a bit of a challenge and the geometry was a challenge and the, the, the flood resilience was necessary to consider. So just thinking about how it was going to be made and then how it was going to be constructed was the, that was the challenge rather than you know how do you do something a, a, an amazing bit of engineering to make it stand up let me go to Piers for a minute so Piers you've looked at this building could you have told straight away that it was a mole architect's building do you think that's a really interesting question and I I think probably yes because it's it's quirky in a kind of unpredictable way and there's a set, there is a composition, but it's a very unusual composition. And I think working in a context like this is really hard. And it's a very particular context. And you could argue that you kind of hardly need architecture. You know, if you look at where this building is, there's a series of buildings that have evolved over many years. And most of them haven't been designed by an architect. Most of them are quite unselfconscious. And you have all those sort of haphazard encounters of one building being next to another that have evolved over three or four hundred years. But it is a very strange and unusual place. Meredith and I went to Australia about three or four years ago to do a talk in a context where people were talking about um, India and, um, you know, exotic to our minds places. Meredith gave a talk about East Anglia, and it seemed in the context of all these other people, the most exotic and strange landscape out of all of them. So I would just like to zoom out a little bit and let's let's hear about where is this place? I mean, what's it like and how do you come to it? And how did you end up knowing how to place a building in a context that seems to me, as somebody who lives in the West, so strange and other? Yeah, I mean, of course, if you live there, it's um, utterly familiar and, um, and, and treasured. But one thing that's really uh, particular about East Anglia is how cut off it has been over the, over the years. That's the whole of East Anglia. So this is coastal, which is the most connected. So East Anglia made its connections to the rest of the world through uh, seafaring and then up rivers. 
and once uh, the rivers ceased to be the main form of transport, it was sort of cut off. So the consequence of that, and we don't have any any uh, hills or big rivers to drive industry. Uh, so the Industrial Revolution passed it by, which is why it feels like a place out of time, because it, it effectively stopped at the end of the very rich medieval, its rich medieval history, um, until kind of late 20th century. Apart from the university towns, there wasn't much going on. There wasn't much industry, which is... Which is why I think, uh, I mean, each part of East Anglia has its own very particular qualities, um, but they're all very cohesive. So North Norfolk, where where this is, uh, it's it's a ring of uh, fishermen's towns along the coast uh, that built out of the local materials, changed over time, and actually with a great deal of variation. Although it's the typical is what is treasured and the very the bits around it are less uh, observed you know but the brick and uh, the flint uh, the lime wash uh, the uh, black painted pan tiles i mean they're quite extraordinary uh, consistent um and you know the feeling of of those materials belonging to that landscape as all indigenous vernacular buildings tend to do is is incredibly strong and our client wanted something that was extraordinary, as extraordinary as we could muster up for him uh, with the knowledge that we were in the middle of a conservation area next to a load of listed buildings. I mean, interestingly, I don't have, uh, I mean, I value conservation areas and I love listed buildings. I think the idea of, of, of uh, preservation and making something that is suitable for its context that's not going to uh, upset the equilibrium of, of a place i don't have any problem with it at all i think the administration of it um and the interpretation of the rules is often incredible incredibly narrow um so you know to what extent do we want to make something that was extraordinary or make something that belonged to another worldly place i, I don't think the two need to be separated because my take of making a building that is contextually uh, conscious does not preclude it being different it, I mean, at the same I, time it is familiar and i think what's interesting one of the reasons that i can tell this is a mole building is that you know i i suppose studied in a culture that was quite straightforwardly modern it was rooted in the modern movement and no architect that i knew really knew how to respond to a historic place with any degree of um, subtlety and sophistication. By what I mean is there's a modernist response and there's a conservation mm. response. And to actually understand how you can do an extraordinary building that really does look at what's there in a very considered way and doesn't try to mimic it, doesn't try to be a pastiche of it, but at the same time sort of draws out a building that is extraordinary without being overtly extraordinary. Do you know what I mean? It's, it has a kind of subtle, extraordinary nature where many people could probably pass this building by without really knowing it was there. You know, if you squint and you blur your eyes, and you look at that street scene, you know, you kind of would pass it by. But if you look at it, it's it's unlike any other building there and the materials are distinct and it is an unusual and extraordinary building. So talk a little bit about how you can juggle the ordinary and the extraordinary simultaneously. 
It's probably, I mean, observing a place um, and spending time uh, just seeing what you can find is is really interesting. And the bit, the bit that I think is often, in terms of interpretation of what the character of, pl- of a place is, is often lost, is that everyone focuses in on the special particular, you know, beautiful buildings. And they say that's the nature of the place. And then it's even written into the conservation of appraisals. They usually exclude everything else uh, as if that doesn't make up the quality of the place. You're listening to AT Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. For more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts. So there's a number of images that we used uh, when we were trying to get to grips with the character of what we wanted to produce that were not actually buildings. They were bits of buildings or signs or in particular the, the, the lobster pups that are made out of kind of netted material that are piled up on the foreshore. And the character of the place, oh, and also um, black tar-painted walls. So there's the, there's buildings that are black tar-painted, but a lot of the walls are. And, um, you know, so that's the, that's the character that we began to kind of uh, discover that wasn't just the listed buildings that were highlighted by those that valued the place. And how then do you make a, a building that encapsulates or, or imbues those qualities, which includes the lobster pots and the black painted. The, the little building at the back, by the way, shouldn't have been grey. It should have been black, but the conservation office just wouldn't have it. It was freaked him out too much, even though you could point to other black buildings. Because it made, for him, too stark a contrast. So my thought is that you can make a condensation, like an extreme genius loci, <laughs> A concentration of what's there, which makes you then look at what's what you're, you know, what's around you, because it's startling. I mean, black is a strange colour in any context um, for conservation officers, even when actually in a rural or um, small town context, it's the most familiar colour of all. I mean, in this context, we have black barns everywhere, and we did a black barn or proposed a black extension to a building. And I remember the the um, planning officer. And the um, someone in the, on the planning committee said, I looked at this and I thought, who could do that to a building? And of course, you know, people have been doing that to a building for hundreds of years. Let's also talk a little bit about the familiar. And I think one of the other things that I'm really interested in the language of modernity is how we deal with the familiar. And, you know, I remember when I went to your house first, what's extraordinary about it is, again, the fine line between what's familiar and what's unfamiliar. And, you know, what I like about your house is that a door is still a door and a window is still a window and a skirting is still a skirting. And in the language of modern architecture, those are the hardest things to do. There are almost no architects I know working in the the idiom of the modern that knows how to weave those things in to their work. I mean, how do you deal with those things? Well, in some ways, I think the the general public are, are mystified by architects. And the reason being that we are steeped in a experience and observation of buildings that are are unfamiliar, that are um, hard to find. I mean, one of the uh, aspirations or the instincts that uh, led Alain de Botton to do living architecture was thinking that people don't ever are never able to experience modern architecture. So, to to us the kind of language that we uh, were asked to think about what was going to be our 
language as architects. And we had to be schooled in it. We, we weren't able to experience it. And so most people, um, the idea of us talking about uh, the difficulties of a window or a door would have no idea what on earth we're talking about. <laughs> and I think um, what's, what's happened to me over the years and, you know, traveling around and seeing stuff, uh, you know, I, I, I love looking at old buildings as much as new ones, is, is understanding the language of the built world, which includes modernism, but it's predominantly stuff that's been built over the last thousand years. And actually, I think the, the resonance for me of going into uh, historic places uh, is stronger than going into most, most modern buildings. So what I like about old buildings is that inscrutability that you can't quite tell what started and what finished and what happened in between when, if you know what I mean. There's no beginning point. There's no end point. And um, when I look at this house, it doesn't look like a building that was necessarily designed to look as if it was made over time. And yet it does feel as if it could have been made or evolved over time. There could have been something there that was accrued in quite an unselfconscious manner. And yet at the same time, it is a formal piece of design. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's, it is completely artful, of course. It's, it's not accidentally haphazard. It was... Um, it was invented in a way to give it that sense of accretion mm. and partly that was a response to we want to build a building that is I, at first it was three bedrooms we ended up with two bedrooms but we wanted to get a three-bedroom house on a site that was clearly going to be uh, contentious to fill, fill in the hole um, mainly because of the flood level which meant all the accommodation had to be over 3.2 meters so and to break it down into three parts was a logical thing to do or two I mean two parts to break it down so it wasn't one big building into two smaller was simply stood a better chance of it being less imposing in the street having done that we then made it three instead of two and thought of them like I don't know three pebbles or boats that had knocked together when the tide went out looking out to sea there Uh, and the site of course was irregular and our client wanted to use every available bit of space. And so those three forms that started off being orthogonal then found their position, which left all kinds of weird angles in between them that was hell to build. But I think that's the, the artful um, artfulness in making a building that does appear like it wasn't all built at one go. Because if you're building at one go, why would you make life so difficult for yourself? But there's also, I mean, it's more than just pragmatic, isn't it? Because I can kind of see that just breaking it down was, you know, was a kind of elegant way of dealing with concerns about scale. But having gone beyond that, you've actually really, really ramped it up by making them completely different in terms of material expression and lightness and darkness. And actually, you've really enjoyed the kind of like, oh, oh no, we're two separate houses. We've got nothing to do with each other. Or have we? It's almost like you're playing with your audience. And I think... um, the other thing which sort of jumped out at me is, you know, you've got this very evocative idea of this boathouse uh, underneath the house. But then actually, whereas most boathouses have this very kind of direct relationship with the water, you read something very solid. There's a bench in front of it. I know you didn't put the bench there, but it's absolutely hilarious. You know, it just feels like if you'd set out to write a postmodern narrative, you couldn't have kind of messed with our heads anymore. You know, it's like, well, where's the boat go? Is it going to the bench? Like, what is it? You know, it's like a whole kind of Duchamp-esque composition going on. So, you know, is it really a boathouse down below or was that just a, a sleight of hand that made it feel 
comfortable with the planners. Well, John, I mean, it can't be used for a living accommodation. Uh, and John does have a boat that's in it. So um, it's currently used as a boathouse. <laughs> and a little <laughs> but bit. But it's a boat road. that has to go on a road and down and round. You know, it's not a boat that slides in water. These places are Duchampian, actually. I mean, the, the kind of weird weird stuff that goes on in these seaside towns is is pretty amazing, you know. And there's a whole bunch of very different activities and people, occupations. Uh, incomers, you know, bringing money and a different sensibility. There's a conflict there, significant one. You know, they're, they're, they're not homogenous places and they're not logical, that's for sure. I think, and something that Piers talked about early on, which is that these places develop as though they haven't had an architect's hand mm. in them uh, and that you, you could kind of, you know, dash past your house without looking twice. How much were you tr- almost trying to um, disguise your own intent as a designer? Oh, not at all. <laughs> No, I, I think, um, you know, by the same token, I'm interested in, in a contextual architecture and vernacular building. Uh, I'm totally always wanting to uh, make a statement, make people look at where they are. So it's, as Pierre said earlier on, it's a, it's a balance, it's a judgment as to how far you can push it before it becomes unacceptable in or won't be accepted by people. I mean, I generally... Our general experience is that people are up in arms about what we're proposing on nearly every job we do. Uh, And we get vociferous um, attacks at planning stage. And then then the people that, of course, don't bother to write in saying they think that's interesting. Once it's built, uh, the building gets a lot of attention uh, and people, the other people, are really glad that someone has taken the trouble and the time to see where they live and to do something which responds to it. You're listening to 80 Conversations. For more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcast. I think everyone is happy with the same as what's there already. So if there's if there's a pastiche building that's not even if the building's actually too big and ugly, if it's a pastiche building, they're kind of not affronted and, and not confronted with anything because they know it. So they sort of accept it. Oh, it's going to be one of those. Okay. Once they're presented with something that makes them think, they don't know how they will think. I, I, that's what I suspect. Uh, and so they'd rather simply it wasn't there. I mean, I understand that the people, a couple of the people who uh, really were objecting uh, heavily, I have, you know, they've got to know. Uh, our clients um, and have said they like it. <laughs> it's fine. And I think earlier when you were saying about the, the 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 scale and the placement of windows, actually that's what matters. That's what makes something appro- appropriate for a place. Mm. You know, that it, its relationship to its neighbours, especially in terms uh, of scale. Mm. But here, I mean, it does do that. I mean, there are roof forms that work incredibly well with the neighbours. You know, the one on the left, as you look at it from the sea, has the same pitch on the hip as the one next door, you know, and so on. And, you know, it, it looks like it should be there, which is, again, I think it is an unusual thing for a contemporary building to do immediately after it's built, you know, um, because, you know, places are things that we can only see through the lens of time, you know. And what I mean is that when we look at this place, we see 400 years of history in a way, 
set out in front of us. And yet this feels like an inevitable and appropriate part of that history. And yet none of those materials are actually the same materials, are they? They're all subtly different. I mean, that me- the, the Corten or rusted steel um, louvered mesh is is not what we see there. And, you know, um, talk a little bit about the materials, about how you do something different that at the same time is the same. Well, some of them are the same. I mean, had we had more, um, I mean, we found a really good uh, black clay tile, um, pan tile. On the left building, on the left. On the left building. Yeah. Um, that had a, a really uh, nice finish to it. Some of them are really pretty dreadful. And uh, the left building has uh, flint work that the contractor, um, did, uh, John Cunningham's was the builders who are local and John had worked with before and they really had some great tradespeople. And a fantastic foreman. Actually, we should talk about construction in a bit. Um, so, I mean, actually, all that is relatively um, uh, the, the, those materials, are, and the rest of it is um, it, it is just a painted uh, render. So, it's but many really- architects would have looked, would have used this word singular and simple. And I think simple is the, about the worst word in architecture. Not that I don't like simple buildings, but it's aiming for something simple above all else. You know, what I like about this building is that it looks a bit like how you dress. You know, there's, it's kind of, you know, there is a, a considered sort of, you know, and, and eclectic nature to this thing, which yeah. still does fly in the face of much architecture that strives for a kind of simplicity, you know. Yes, I mean it's probably bonkers actually. <laughs> to, to try and do... I remember going shopping for for an um, umbrella in Cambridge with you once, and it was raining, and you went in, we went into the shop, and I was like, okay, I'll have an umbrella because I need to keep dry. You're like, okay, I'll have an umbrella. Have you got any other colour other than black? I said no. You have you haven't got a white one? No, a blue? No, red? No, pink? No. And eventually, and I think you probably refused to buy buy the black umbrella. You know, you didn't want. <laughs> wouldn't have it so so let's talk about construction then how how is it made and how much did your client the engineer have an input into it actually his input was uh, was really interesting he just wanted it to be as stiff as possible he didn't want an inch of movement in it brilliant great so it was uh, completely over engineered you know you're used to the engineering being driven down to the minimum and the engineer, you don't need more than that. And, uh, you know, John wanted to clap the whole thing in 25 mil ply. So the whole thing was <laughs> as rigid as anything. Mm. Uh, but it was, we had assumed originally it would be three little timber buildings on top of a concrete base, which was flood resilient. Mm. Um, and thought, why can't they all be made in cut timber? And and uh, we actually ended up having a, a steel frame that set out the building in effect for the each of the three um each of the three pitches and i was quite against that originally i thought why can't it just be timber on top of uh on, on top of concrete blocks you know what's what's the problem with that you know we've been building little this is a tiny building but actually um they persuaded me that the size of the timbers which had to go up and the the space constraints on this building were enormous because the, the amount that we could actually put accommodation was very small so john was concerned always to keep keep as much accommodation and interior volume as possible but the advantage of the steel frame, which are only small angles, was enormous because it was such a complex building to set out. The steel frame was done between Alice Hamlin, who is the architect in my office working on the drawings, and um, John's uh, engineer, oh, I forgot his name, um, 
who, you know, they used our BIM model and the steel frame was made off the BIM model. So when it arrived and was erected on site, it fit, fitted. And uh, all of the timber work then could simply go to the right place. I think the setting out of it would have been really challenging if it had just been timber. So that's quite an interesting lesson to learn, actually, in terms of the um, the, the value of sequential work and, and setting out. Mm-hmm. But it's also interesting that you don't really read the engineering in the building, do you? I mean, it's it's it, it's all hidden, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you read the opposite, don't you? I mean, from engineering terms, you know, you have you have the sort of horizontal layers where you have to have the floodproof base and everything else, but you deliberately made it read you know the divides are vertical very very explicitly which again you know i hate to use the word postmodern because it's so unfashionable but it is kind of a a willfully playful approach to things i mean the the bit that makes it uh impossible to make a simple timber structure is the is the uh, roof terrace that was dropped down into the volume of the hipped you know the hipped boots so you've got a hip with a chunk of it cut out in the middle, a sort of three meter square chunk cut out in the middle. So to, you know, that would have been very difficult to do that without steel anyway. Is that um, their only outside space that they have? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's massively valuable. You know, there's a tiny little uh, um, staircase going up uh, to a sliding roof light. There's lots of, um, John really loves his uh, electronic gadgets. So we've got, a, there's a sliding window in the bedroom that drops down into the wall. And I like that. That, yeah. Um, and it's a sliding window that allows you to go up onto the roof terrace so you can carry a tray of stuff and press a button and walk out onto the roof terrace. And then there's a, a dumb waiter that takes your G&Ts up to the roof terrace from the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite an unusual thing also to be able to get a house on a site with no external space around it. Usually planners do like to see... Um, a garden which op- often diminishes quite urban I mean this is quite an urban building quite diminishes the urban do you know what I mean because we don't yeah. perceive gardens in urban contexts and to fill a site is unusual and also to enter as I can understand it from the back is quite unusual which I also really like or from the side don't you yeah yeah it's a little side street so you enter up the side which is up the hill so in terms of flood uh, it's that's very you know to get the entrance door as high up the hill as we could was part of it mm-hmm. but it has flooded there up to um middle of ground floor of the house next door relatively recently my instinct is that it's a building to look out from rather than look at yeah although most of what we've talked about at the beginning is how it seems in the in the street in the in that yeah. row of houses you know the building is wholly about the view mm. You know, you, you, you're not going to go on holiday there and not want to look at the view. I mean, everyone wants a front row seat. Mm. So, you know, we've given it the biggest window we could on the front row seat. It's looking north. Weirdly, it's a part of East Anglia that faces north. Mm. So there's no uh, overheating from the window. Everything is subservient to that view because that's all you want to do if you're there. Mm. What about your own environmental agenda? I mean, I know you take energy very seriously energy use and carbon i have long since uh, well i continue to pressurize uh, my local authorities and central government um along with letty to change the legislation so we can't build buildings that use more energy and should include embodied energy and, and until that is a regulation then then you know it's up to people to make their own choices 
Do you think in, say, 150 years' time, looking at that little building, people will be able to date it? In a way, a bit of me hopes not. Um, I mean, some of the best places that I know and some of the places that I care about most, when I go there now, I can't really tell whether something was built in 1930, 1870 or even 1980 because it's not because the buildings are trying to be something that they're not. There are just other priorities in terms of how places are made and how places evolve. And for me, what works really well about this building is that it it plays that game. It, It knows how to sort of nestle in, knows what games to play, knows what games not to play, knows what to be, knows how to be avert or explicit or implicit with all of those moves. And that's very subtle and very clever. So I think perhaps the greatest compliment is that in however many years' time, you won't really know when it was constructed. So congratulations, Meredith, then, on designing a timeless classic. And thank you very much, Meredith and Piers, for talking to me today. This is AT Conversations with me, Isabel Allen. For more, visit architecturetoday.co.uk forward slash podcasts.